Saul, bow before Almighty Yahweh. Father Yahweh, we come before you. We thank you for the blessings of this day. We thank you for those here. We pray that we would always focus on your word, that we would strive to please you in all ways, that we would seek to endeavor to show more devotion, more dedication, that we would be better than who we are today. Father, we thank you now, and we thank you for the blessings within our families. We thank you for the blessings here at this ministry. We pray that you will always be here and that you will always guide this ministry and guide those in this room. And we ask all this in Yahshua's beloved name. Hallelujah. Y'all may be seated. My message uh, today is entitled Prophetic Roadmap. You know, and as a project manager, I use roadmaps. And uh, from a developing standpoint, IT standpoint, it helps for me to get from point A to point B and uh, every step between. Well, this is something I've used for many years, and today I'm going to kind of reuse this concept, but this time for prophecy and what we find within Scripture. So a roadmap is a very high-level tool that a lot of project managers and managers will use to uh, kind of show where you're going in an organization. And uh, today, again, we're going to view it, use it for prophecy. You know, many people, they find prophecy uh, challenging, the uh, order of events, when they occur, how they occur. And we certainly don't know everything. There's many things we don't know, but there's many things we do know, I believe. So again, today we're going to go through a uh, roadmap, and we're going to begin with the tribulation, and we're going to end... The roadmap will end the journey with uh, New Jerusalem. So there's a lot to cover. It's kind of ambitious, but um, we're not going to be reviewing any of these things in depth, obviously, but we're going to be reviewing them maybe from a 50-foot, 1,000, you know, whatever it is, 50-foot mile uh, height there. So here's a chart showing those items we're going to review. The uh, tribulation is number one, as I've already mentioned. The uh, great tribulation, which is within the tribulation, but still distinct. Yahshua's return, of course, is huge. The millennium, that 1,000 years that we find prophetically. The uh, binding and the, rem- the removal of Satan the devil is a big pivotal point within the prophetic roadmap. Oh, you know what? I messed that up here. So Yahshua's return, I'm sorry, the first resurrection is next. And uh, then the binding and removal of Satan. And then the millennium. And then after that, we have the release of Satan. And uh, after that, we have the great white throne judgment. And then finally, we have the new Jerusalem. So that is how I see the uh, prophetic roadmap occurring today. So just again, real quickly, the tribulation, the great tribulation, Yahshua's return, the first resurrection, the removal of Satan, the millennium, the release of Satan, the great white throne judgment, and New Jerusalem. So we're going to be reviewing these pivotal times within the uh, prophetic roadmap. I want to begin today with the first one here, and that is the tribulation. Normally, I'm going to hit just one or two passages, normally one. I mean, I could give an entire message on any one of these items, so we're going to really, again, view them from a high-level standpoint. So uh, for me, the pivotal passage when speaking about the tribulation is Daniel 9, verse 27. We learn many things there. So Daniel 9, verse 27 says, And he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst, or the middle, 
of the week, he shall cause thee sacrificing the oblation to seize, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, until the, even until the consummation. And that determined it shall be poured upon the desolate. Now who is he in this passage? Who is he? Well, this is referring to the man of sin, the son of perdition, the anti-Messiah. So we see here that he's in a form of covenant, it says, for one week. For one week with many nations. Now the uh, week here, this is analogous. This is symbolic of seven years. So we see here from a prophetic standpoint that the man of sin is going to make a covenant with many nations for seven years. This is the duration. This is the time frame for the tribulation, seven years. And this is how we really develop and derive this number. Many people ask, how do we know this? So this is where we derive the seven years. There's not many passages supporting or confirming this beyond what we have here, but it says here one week, again, analogous to seven years. Now, what will happen during these seven years? I'm not going to be turning to a lot of passages. I'm going to give you a quick description as to what will occur during this time, where again, we see here from this passage that the man of sin will form a covenant, an agreement, a compact, if you will, with many nations. And I believe that this agreement will be some sort of peace treaty that the man of sin will put in place during this time that says, again, with many nations, not all nations, it says, but many nations of this earth, that this man will form some, some sort of confederacy, peace agreement. Now, these last three and a half years is known as the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation. We're going to talk more about this. The Great Tribulation. This is when the man of sin will sit in the temple. And this is when that he will proclaim himself as most high. So we find a distinction again between the tribulation and the great tribulation. The tribulation is when the great tribulation is when the man of sin will proclaim himself as most high. I don't believe that will happen though before that point. Now this is also when, as we're going to see through the word, this is also when persecution will begin. Now we know that persecution will involve really two groups of people. Number one, the Jews. I do believe we see scriptural support that the Jews will be persecuted during this time. We also know that Yahweh's people, they're going to be persecuted during this time. Those who believe in the Messiah, those who hold to the Messiah, will be persecuted during this time. Now, before we move on and talk more about the Great Tribulation, I'm going to point out one more thing here. And this is kind of important. We find evidence of sacrifices and oblations during the first half, I believe, of the Tribulation. You know, based on this, I believe before the tribulation begins, we're going to see two things. Number one, we're going to see a temple restored. A temple restored. And we're also going to see sacrifices also restored during this time. And, you know, Scripture says, if possible, even the elect could be led astray. I've often wondered how this could be possible. How is it possible that the very elect could be led astray? Now, some will say that it's a Sunday law or some other law. And I certainly respect their views. But I have a hard time seeing how a Sunday law would lead astray Yahweh's people. But I can see if the man of sin is going to reinstitute temple worship. How many believers, because I've seen this already happen, believers leaving the faith, going back to Judaism. Or if you have a man coming along, building a temple and saying, I am restoring pure worship. Or I can see many people being led astray by this. And you know, as many of you know, there are those working feverishly to 
make this happen. Both trips to Israel, I've had the opportunity to visit the organization known as the Temple Institute. They are prepared, as of right now, to implement those things necessary to sacrifice right now. Now, there's things that they still are trying to find, like the red heifer and other things that some say the red heifer exists, some say it doesn't. There's no concrete evidence as of right now, but there's a few things we're waiting for, but certainly we're getting closer and closer, and you're seeing organizations preparing for this third temple and this concept of sacrifices. So this is not a far-fetched idea. Many people are striving to implement these things, and I think when we see a temple restored, we're going to see sacrifices restored very quickly in this case. Now, we also see here that in the middle, it says mist, of this time, this one-week time, this seven years, that the man of sin is going to stop, it says, the oblations or sacrifices, and in their place is going to set up the abomination of desolation. You know, Yahshua the Messiah, he spoke also about this abomination of desolation. I believe that this is the one sign. You know, some people say, what should we be watching for, for the tribulation, a great tribulation? And I would say the one thing we should be watching for is this abomination of desolation. Because Yahshua said in the Olivet Prophecy that when we see this thing in place, those in Judea, he said, that they were to flee. So this is the one sign I believe as believers we should be looking for. Number one, we need a temple, but three and a half years into that temple, it says that the man of sin will stop the sacrifices, and then he will substitute those for this abomination of desolation. And Yahshua said again in Matthew 24, when we see this thing happen, he says, those in Judea, and those in Judea, because that is where the epicenter of this will occur, but those in Judea, he said to flee. Don't go back home. Don't grab anything. Flee, because this time is now upon us. You see, this abomination, again, is going to be that one sign that we can all look for. Now, in addition to all the other items we find here, we also see, again, the timing of the great or the tribulation. Now, I mentioned that the great tribulation is different, worse within the tribulation. Now, we find two examples of the timing, one in Daniel and one in the book of Revelation. So I want to turn to both of those passages First, uh, Daniel, Daniel 7, verse 25, we really learn a lot here. It says, and he shall, and this is, again, the man of sin, and he shall speak great words, great words against the Most High. And he shall wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws, and they shall be given into his hand. Now listen, it says, until a time and times and a dividing of time. To begin with, we see here that the man of sin will do what? It says here that the man of sin will speak words against the Most High. You know, we also see this concept. We see this, this, this uh, action in Revelation 13, verse 6. It says there in this passage, it says, He, the man of sin, again, opened his mouth in blasphemy against Yahweh, to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle and them that dwell in heaven. So we find even in the book of Revelation, confirmation that the man of sin is going to speak words against Yahweh, is going to blaspheme Yahweh's name, is going to blaspheme those in heaven, is going to blaspheme those that follow the true Messiah. You know, this is one reason why this man is called the anti-Messiah. You know, like Yahshua who supported the truth of Yahweh's word. 
This man will do no such thing. He is going to be anti, meaning that he's going to be against. He's going to be against the concepts, the truths, the word of our Father in heaven. You know, it also says here that he's going to wear out the saints. You know, I mentioned scripture shows that tribulation will begin during this time against the saints, those who follow Yahweh. And I, again, I also believe the Jews would fall under this category as well. You know, based on Revelation 12, which we're going to see just in a few moments, I believe that many believers will be taken out into a place of refuge. We're going to talk more about that in just a few moments. But I also believe that based on the fifth seal of Revelation, in Revelation 6 we see that, the fifth seal of Revelation, that some will die as a martyr for the faith. It mentions that some will die as a martyr to their faith. Some will serve as a witness to Yahweh's word in that way. So some will die. Some will die. And that's something, you know, as believers, we really need to take to heart. We really need to ask, could I provide that sacrifice if necessary? Could I give my life for the faith that I believe in today? Someday that day may come about. And we certainly see this nation and this world declining amongst us. And I don't see that trend changing, by the way. I really don't. I, I don't see that trend changing. I think we will continue to decline. And as believers, we need to make sure that our faith is sufficient so that if we must give the sacrifice necessary, that we're willing and able to do it. Now, we also see evidence for the persecution of the saints in Revelation 20, verse 4. There, we find that the saints are, will, will be beheaded, Scripture says. So, many, many instances, many examples of persecution for the saints, of beheading and wearing out the saints, as we find here. Now, as believers, we need to realize that this time is approaching. This time is approaching. While I defer from giving dates and times, it's important that we strengthen our faith and devotion now. I don't know if it's going to be 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, or even 50 or more. I don't know. But what I know is that this world is declining, that's for sure. We are seeing sin increase. We are seeing immorality increase. And as believers, we need to be cognizant of these things. and We need to be ready. When this time does come upon us, we need to strengthen our faith and devotion. You know, believe me, we have not seen anything yet. Those who believe that we've seen some sense of persecution, they're wrong. We have not seen any sense of real persecution, certainly not in this nation. We've been very, very blessed in this nation. I mean, the fact that we can come together as we do without hindrance. And I don't see this changing anytime real soon. But I do believe the day will come when we may not be able to even do what we're doing now. Maybe we have to go underground. Maybe we have to meet in homes. But where we will not be able to do what we're doing now because of this persecution. You know, in that day, will we be able to stand? Now, we also see here another truth, and that is this man of sin will think, it says, to change times and laws. You know, this man is going to introduce, I believe, an entirely different system of worship which I believe will revolve around him for the most part. You know, some believe, again, that it's going to be some sort of Sunday universal law. Some believe other things. Or I believe it's going to be something very different, something we don't even 
know about right now, that this man is going to introduce some system of worship that we're not even aware of, familiar of, familiar with today. You know, whatever it is, though, we know that it's not going to be of Yahweh, it's not going to be of his word, it's not going to be of his truth, and I believe when it happens, we will know. And that's one of the things with prophecy, by the way. I don't think we have to have it all figured out. You know, some of these people, they have all the specific answers. And I believe as believers, if we're striving to study the word, when we see these things happen, we're going to know that these days are upon us. I really believe that. You know, when we see a temple and when we see these sacrifices and when, when, when we see this abomination, we're going to say, that's it. But we're going to have to watch. and We're going to have to be cognizant and, and, and aware of what is occurring. And I believe that if we're cognizant, if we're aware, if we're watching, we're going to see it. And that's why, you know, I truthfully don't mind differences when it comes to prophecy. That's fine. Because I think as long as we're searching, as long as we're aware, as long as we're searching it out, that when these times come upon us, we're going to see it and we're going to know it. And we're going to say, there it is. And maybe it's something different from what I believed or you believed. But I believe we're going to see it and we're going to know it when it happens. Now, it also refers to the timing here for the great tribulation, the great tribulation. So we spoke about the tribulation, right? Tribulation, seven years. The man of sin will form a confederacy, a compact, an agreement with many nations for seven years. And then in the midst of those seven years, he's going to cut off the sacrifices and the oblations. And we find here another angle. But this is the great tribulation. This is when persecution will begin. So it says here, that this time that we find here will be a time, times, in a dividing of time. So the time refers to one year. The times, plural, refers to two years. The dividing of time refers to a half a year. Three and a half years will the great tribulation be. Now we find a similar passage, a, a parallel passage really, in Revelation 12, verse 14, it says, And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle, that she might fly into the wilderness into her place, where she is nourished, it says, for a time and times and a half a time from the face of the serpent. Now, who is the woman? Who is the woman in this passage? Well, I believe that this represents all believers in the Messiah. All believers. You know, some say it represents the assembly. Some say it represents Israel. You know, I think it's just easier to say that this represents all believers in Messiah. You know, as we see in Revelation 12, 17 and 14, 12, these are those who will be doing two things. Number one, they will be keeping the commandments, right? Number two, they're going to have faith in Yahshua. These are those who are referred to as this woman. Now, it says here that this woman is given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly into the wilderness. Wilderness. Now, the two wings here simply represent Yahweh's protection, his provision. In fact, in Exodus 19, verse 4, we find this language. Now, this referred to Yahweh bringing Israel out of Egypt. So listen, it says there in Exodus 19, verse 4, it says, You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. 
This was Yahweh's word and how he brought the Israelites out of Egypt and how he brought the Israelites into the wilderness. Now it also says here that he's going to nourish the woman in the wilderness. Now that word nourish is kind of interesting. It comes from the Greek trepho, trepho. According to the Strong's, trepho means to stiffen, that is to fatten by implication to cherish with food. That's based on Strong's. You know, as a side note, in Revelation 2, verse 17, Yahweh promised to give to the assembly at Pergamum hidden manna. Hidden manna, that's what it says. Well, I believe that, that's just my belief, I believe that Yahweh will um, take many, many believers, this woman, into the wilderness in the latter days to a place of refuge. And he's, he's going to feed this woman, the believers, with manna as he did with Israel of old. I believe that we see evidence for that. Now, we also see the great tribulation, the timing of this. As we saw in Daniel 9, verse, or 7, verse 25, it says again, time and times and a half a time. Three and a half years. Three and a half years of the great tribulation. So this again points to this time, the latter half of the tribulation. Now remember what will occur during these last three and a half years. The man of sin, from all accounts, from all evidence, will stop the sacrifices. We see that. He will also speak words against the Most High. He will blaspheme Yahweh. And he will also blaspheme the saints and and those in heaven. He will also persecute the Jews and those believers in the Messiah. He will also think to change times and laws to introduce a new system, I believe, of worship entirely foreign to what we have today. And he will also sit in the temple declaring himself as the most high. We didn't see that passage with us in the New Testament. Again, I can't show everything today. But we see evidence that the man of sin will sit in the temple and he will declare, says himself, as Elohim or the most high. Now, at the end of the seven years, what happens? Where at the end of the seven years, at the end of the tribulation, we know that Yahshua is going to return back to this earth. Now, as we see in Zechariah 12, we're not going to turn there. You can just jot that down in your notes. This is a really good message, by the way, to be taking notes, because I'm going to refer to a lot of scripture that I'm not going to show on the screen. So as we see there in Zechariah 12, when Yahshua comes, he's going to fight. He's going to return to Jerusalem. He's going to fight against those armies that come against the city. At this time, he will defend Judah and Benjamin, it says. He will strengthen Judah and Benjamin. He will empower Judah and Benjamin, as we find with the word. Now, we also see in Zechariah 14 that he will pour out a great plague upon those who are gathered against Jerusalem. He will pour out a plague and consume those armies. Let me read to you, this is from Zechariah 14, verse 12. It says, quote, And this shall be the plague wherewith Yahweh will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem, their flesh their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. And their eyes shall consume away in their hulls, and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. That's the plague Yahweh will strike this earth with. When Yahshua comes to reclaim this world, there's nothing that's going to hold him back. He's going to strike the earth with a plague like man has never seen. And they're going to know that this is the son of Yahweh. Now, based on the Olivet Prophecy in Matthew 24, we also know that something else will occur. So when Yahshua comes, again, he's going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to defend the people of Judah. 
And then he will also send forth his angels, it says, to the four corners of this earth, where he will gather the saints. He will gather the saints, and they will meet Yahshua in the clouds. Now, I want to refer to one passage. Again, there's many, many passages you can refer to, and, but just one, just for today. First Thessalonians 4, one of my favorite passages, one of the most important passages in reference to the resurrection. But it says this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 17. It says, For the Master, this is Yahshua himself, shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of Elohim. And the dead and Messiah shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Master in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Master. You know, we see a description here of Yahshua's second coming and a description of the first resurrection. You know, I want to first focus on, the, on Yahshua's coming. Yahshua's coming. It says here that he's going to descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of Elohim. Now, many claim... I'm not going to dwell on this, but many claim that this passage is referring to a rapture. The secret coming in which Yahweh will gather his people and bring them into heaven. Now the one thing that is very clear here is that Yahshua's coming is not in secret or in quiet. There's nothing quiet about what we find here. You know, it describes again his coming with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with a trumpet of Elohim. You know, if his goal was to come quietly, he is certainly um, not meeting that goal. You know, from this passage, it is very evident that when Yahshua comes, all will see him, all will hear him, all will know him. All will know that the Messiah has returned back to this earth. So again, this is referring to a second coming and not to a rapture. Now, what do we learn here about the resurrection? So again, we have uh, two resurrections. We have the first resurrection, we have the second resurrection, where this is the first resurrection. We'll talk more about the second, but that occurs after the millennium, which we'll see uh, still yet in this message. So we find here that the, that the first, it says that the dead will be resurrected, and that we'll meet Yahshua in the clouds. And after the dead are resurrected, we find that the living will then be changed, and we'll also meet Yahshua in the clouds. Now, based on what we see in Zechariah 14, we know that Yahshua then will descend back to the earth, to the Mount of Olives. Here's what it says in Zechariah 14, 3 through 4. It says, Then shall Yahweh go forth and fight against those nations. Now, Yahweh here, Yahshua is representing his father. It's important to understand that. Yahweh doesn't return until all enemies are subdued. We know that. But it says here, and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle and his feet. Listen, it says, in his feet. Whose feet? Yahshua's feet. Yahshua's feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. Now, we know that when this occurs, the mountain will split, by the way. In fact, there's a fault line in the Mount of Olives. They know where it's at. And it's going to split this mountain north, north to south. I want to ask, who exactly is going to be found worthy of the first resurrection? I'll just explore this real quickly here. Where I believe that this includes all those who lived for Yahweh, beginning with Adam. This includes all those in the faith chapters we find in Hebrews 11. 
This also includes 144,000 that will be sealed right before Yahweh pours out his plagues, as we see in Revelation 7, 2 through 3. And, um, you know, as we see there in Revelation, the 144,000, it says, are virgins. This, this kind of throws a lot of people. You know, are they men? No, it just simply means they're morally, morally pure, is all it's saying. It's, it's analogous or it's symbolic. It's, it's not literal, not in that sense. Surely not, just men. I just have a hard time believing that. No, it's, it's just moral purity. That's all it's saying. But we know that at this time, that Yahweh is going to seal his servants, it says, with, with his name. We see that in Revelation 14, verse 1. Right before he pours out his plagues, he tells the angels to hold back the winds before, before he, uh, so that he can seal his saints. Now, lastly, I believe that this also includes this great multitude. This is mentioned in Revelation 7, 9 through 14. Scripture says these are those who were sealed who were, who, or who washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. And I believe that this is referring to the great, or to, to baptism in Yahshua's name. So again, everybody that's ever lived, right, that's, that's followed Yahweh, the 144,000, those who will be sealed prior to the great tribulation, and then this great multitude that comes out of the great tribulation. These are those who will be resurrected in the first resurrection. So again, I believe that these will be the groups from Adam all the way to the return of Yahshua. Now after the resurrection, what comes next? What happens when Yahshua returns? Or again, we've already established he's going to fight against the armies. He's going to resurrect the saints. What comes next? And it is a bit fuzzy because a lot of this is happening very quickly, I believe. But I believe what happens next is the binding, is the removal of Satan the devil. So where do we see this? Or we see this in Revelation 20. Revelation 20, 1 through 3. It says, And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on that dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him, it says, a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up, and set a seal upon him. So you see, he couldn't escape because that seal was placed over the abyss or over the pit. That he should, it says, deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed, it says, a little season. So we see here that when Yahshua returns and after the resurrection, that the angel, that an angel from heaven is going to take a great angelic chain of some sort it's going to bind Satan, throw Satan in this bottomless pit, as Scripture says, and put a seal so that he can no longer deceive the nations. Now, the term bottomless pit comes from one Greek word, actually. It's abusos, abusos. And uh, the uh, Thayer's Greek lexicon, which I don't honestly completely agree with in all ways, but I'm going to read it because I do think it brings out some truth. This is a very deep gulf or chasm in the lower, lowest parts of the earth, used as a common receptacle of the dead and especially as the abode of demons. And I disagree that Abusos is a place for the dead. You know, we know from Scripture the dead is dead. They're not, they don't go to this chamber. They're dead. It says the dead knows nothing. And it says that in that day that we die, that earth thoughts perish, based on Psalms 146, verse 4. So this is a, but it is, I think, 
good with what it says here about demons. And, and we certainly know about Satan the devil. So whatever this is, it is some sort of abyss, I believe, where Satan will be bound, it says, for the 1,000 years. 1,000 years for the duration of the millennium. And during this time where we know that he's no longer to be in a position to deceive the nations. During this time, no longer will he have influence upon mankind. Now, after 1,000 years, we find that he's going to be loosed for a short time for a short time to deceive the nations once more. Now, I want to hold our thought here because I want to transition to something else. I want to transition and focus really on the millennium because we we have the binding of Satan, right? And now we really usher in the establishment of the millennial kingdom. So we have Yahshua coming, we have Yahshua fighting, we have Yahshua resurrecting, we have Yahshua binding Satan the devil. And now he can begin the establishment of the millennial kingdom of the 1,000-year kingdom in which he will reign and rule over this earth. Now, one of the best passages, short, too, is Revelation 20, verse 6. We find a great summation here of the millennium. Of course, the millennium, I gave a message, an entire message on this, and probably give a series on this if you really wanted to, uh, during the feast. So I'm just going to touch the, uh, touch the surface here. But it says, Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection... It says, on such, the second death has no power. This is referring to the second death or the great white throne judgment. But they shall be priests of Elohim and of Messiah and shall reign with him a thousand years. So it begins here by talking about those from the first resurrection. It says that they, are, they will be exempt. They will be exempt from the second resurrection. In other words, they're resurrected. They will never again die. They're, they're, they're exempt. They're beyond the second resurrection of the great white throne judgment. Now, we also see here that they will reign as a kingdom of priests, as priests with Yahshua the Messiah during this time. Now, for a moment, can you imagine reigning and ruling with the Messiah for 1,000 years? Now, believe me, as we progress through this message, it gets even better. But for the moment, can we imagine, can we, can we visualize in our minds what it will be like to reign and rule with Yahshua for 1,000 years, right there with him, 1,000 years? You know, this is why it's so important that we live for him now. You know, I know this world has a way of pulling us in, 2020 especially. I've never seen a year like this. I've been around for 43 years, and... This is the worst year that I've ever experienced. But you know what? We'll get through it. We'll get through it. And then COVID and everything else you can imagine. I haven't worked in my office in many, many months. Of course, maybe it's a blessing I've been able to work here. So, um, you know, it's just amazing. But you know what? We can't be distracted by these things. Because we're focused on something greater. We're focused on something greater. You know, that thing that really counts. You know, one thing that we should always remember as believers is that this is not our world. This is not why we're here. Our world is something greater than this. Our world is something that's going to come after this. And we shouldn't be distracted. We shouldn't be discouraged. No matter what is happening in this world. And look, we know there's a lot happening in this world. But we should not become discouraged. We should not become discouraged. 
Because we're not here for this world. We're here for something greater, for a greater promise. We have a greater promise ahead, and we need to, be, we need to remember that, I believe, as, as, uh, as disciples and as believers. I want to spend just a few moments talking about the millennium. Now, again, I'm not going to turn to any of these passages. You may want to write them down if you want, or go back and listen to my previous message. I cover most of this. Now, we've already established a few things. We've already established that the millennium is, is a thousand years, right? We've already established that these saints will rule and reign with Yahshua for 1,000 years as a kingdom of priests. We know these things. Beyond this, what else do we know? What else do we know? Okay, here, here they are. According to Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, and Micah 4, 1 through 4. So Isaiah 2, 1 through 4, Micah 4, 1 through 4. During this time, Yahweh's kingdom will be above all other kingdoms. That's what it says. His kingdom, his mountain, it says, or kingdom is what it represents, will be above all other kingdoms during this time. And it also says there that Yahweh's law will go forth from Zion, will go forth from Jerusalem, will go forth from the city of David. We also know from Isaiah and Micah that Yahweh will judge between nations and nations will no longer engage in war. We're not going to see the wars, the unnecessary bloodshed that we see too much in this world today. Now we also see from Micah 4.4, 4, it says there that every man will sit under his own fig tree and under his own vine. You know, I believe that this shows that this earth is going to go back to an agrarian society. You know, if you think about it, it began with the garden, right? The Garden of Eden, I believe, is going to go back to a garden. I believe that this is, was and is Yahweh's intent, always has been. Man has messed it up. You know, we've, uh, I, I've been talking uh, recently, and I've asked a few people, uh, can you think of anything good that comes from these big cities? And you think, of it, think about the first example of a, of a big city, the Tower of Babel, Babel. What good thing came out of the tower? Nothing. Nothing. And it's amazing how corrupt human beings become when they congregate in big cities. It's amazing how that is. I mean, you you see a totally different set of values and morals from big cities versus rural America. And that's true no matter where you're at. That's true no matter where you're at. That's not just unique to this nation. That's true of all nations. That's true of the Tower of Babel. That's true of the very, very first instance of a large congregation of people. They corrupted themselves. They became prideful and they rejected Yahweh. We see the same thing. It's just amazing. It really is. Now, according to um, Isaiah 11, 1 through 9, Yahshua is going to have the spirit of Yahweh upon him. He's going to reign and rule over this earth. He's going to show equity and righteousness and all those great things when he reigns. Now, we also see from this same passage that the very nature of animals will change which is really something when you think about it. The nature of animals will change in the millennium. It says there in Isaiah 11, it says that the, the wolf will lie with a lamb and the calf with a young lion. There's not going to be any conflict or animosity between the animal kingdom. What an amazing thing. And yet, I mean, we see this from the word. We know it's going to happen. Now in Zephaniah 3 verse 9, we see there that it says Yahweh is going to restore a pure language. A pure language. I believe that's going to be Hebrew myself. I believe that he's going to restore the Hebrew language to this earth. Then I'm going to have to learn Hebrew more than just a few words in the alphabet. 
Now, why does he do this? Or it says he does this so that all will, will, will call upon Yahweh's name. That's what it says. Now, from Isaiah 66, 23, we find that all flesh will worship Yahweh during his Sabbaths and new moons. So we find that worship is going to be restored, and not only to a very subset or small part of believers. No, it says all flesh during this time will worship Yahweh during the Sabbaths. All flesh. And this is prophetic. You know, just, just as an example, I'll go down my soapbox for just, just a quick moment. You know, we find the Sabbath observance in the Old Testament, right? We find Sabbath observance in the New Testament. The word Sabbath is mentioned 60 times in the King James New Testament. We find that the Sabbath is going to be a requirement for all flesh in the millennial kingdom. And yet, for some odd reason, it's not obligatory today. That doesn't make any sense at all. No, no sense at all. Now, last one here is from Zechariah 14, verse 6. We find that the Feast of Tabernacles, and really all the feasts, because we also have uh, Ezekiel uh, 44 and 45 and 46, referring to other feast days. But we see there that in Zechariah it says that all nations, all nations, even Egypt, it says, will be required to keep the feast. It says if they don't come up, what does it say? It says that if they don't come up, they're going to receive a plague of no rain. And going back to that agricultural remark I made just a few moments ago, that's kind of important. If every man is going to sit under his own vine and under his own fig tree and receives no rain, that's kind of important. And yet that's what Scripture says. You know, for me, when you boil it down, the millennium is a time of restoration. It is a time when Yahshua is going to come to restore Yahweh's word, to restore righteousness, to, re- to restore truth, and to remove all the immorality from this world. And it's for a reason and a cause and a purpose. And the reason he comes to do this is so that Yahweh is able to come with his city. That is why he does this. That is a whole purpose, I believe, behind the millennium. It is a, a stopgap. It is a transitional time between the chaos we have now to when Yahweh comes. And it is a time to restore, to remove, and to make things right. In fact, I don't have this on the slide, but I really want to read it. So um, I'm going to turn to it. You can read it with me or just listen. It doesn't matter. 1 Corinthians 15. It's such an important passage. 15 and uh, 24 through 28. It says, Then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to Yahweh. So this is after the millennium. This is after the millennium. Even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. So you see, that's what he's doing during this time. He's putting down all rule. He's putting down all power. He's restoring truth. Verse 25, 5, for he must reign, Yahshua must reign, till he hath put all enemies under his feet. You see, as long as there's one enemy remaining, the Messiah must reign to remove that enemy. Verse 26, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And we're going to see that in this message, when death itself will be destroyed. Death won't exist. It says in verse 27, for he 
hath put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is manifest that he has accepted which did put all things under him. In other words, Joshua put all, Yahweh put all things under Joshua's feet except his authority. It's important to understand. Everything belongs to Joshua except Yahweh. Yahweh is still superior. Now verse 28, And when all things shall be subdued unto him, and again this is in the millennium, unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that Yahweh may be all in all. So now in that verse we've transitioned to New Jerusalem, which we'll talk about at the end of this message. But the point is, the point is the purpose of the millennium is to restore truth so that Yahweh can come with his holy city. That's, that's the purpose. Now, after the 1,000 years of the millennium, what do we find next? Remember the roadmap? Satan. That's right. Satan is loosed. In Revelation 20, verse 7. Now, there is some debate as to when Satan is loosed. Is it before or after the, the uh, great white throne? Um, I tend to see it before. But Revelation 20, 7 through 10, it says, And when the 1,000 years are expired, Satan shall be loosed out of his prison, where this is his bottomless pit. It's, again, remember, he was sealed and kept in this pit. It says, And he shall go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners or quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle the number of whom is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and encamped or compassed the camp of the saints about in the beloved city. The beloved city is Jerusalem. And fire, says, came down from Yahweh out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, when, and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, should say were, by the way, were. They were there. They were thrown in there. But they're, they're consumed at this point. And shall be tormented, it says, day and night, forever and ever. And we'll talk more about that. So, again, we find here that after the millennium, what happens? For Satan is loosed. It says out of his prison. And when this happens, we find that he's going to go forth to deceive the nations once more. To deceive mankind. His goal is simple. To deceive as many as he possibly can. To gather an army to come against the beloved city. Jerusalem. To come against Yahweh's city. Now he's going to deceive many people at this time, but not everybody. Now again, I've mentioned there's some debate as to when this will happen. Some say before, some say after. That were during, I should say, the Great White Throne Judgment. From the chronology we find here in the Book of Revelation, it seems to flow at the end of the millennium and before the Great White Throne. You know, one thing I haven't mentioned is, in addition to the first resurrection. So we have the first resurrection. We've talked about the first resurrection, who's included in the first resurrection. But we also know that there's going to be a portion of this earth, the people of this world, who will survive and who will go through and find themselves in the millennium. Some say a tenth, some say a third. I'm not going to give a number. I think it's going to be a, a minority. 
I don't think the majority will survive. I think the majority will die in the Great Tribulation. But there will be many out of the billions of people that are on earth now that will find themselves in the millennium. You know, these people will continue to live. I believe they will continue to multiply and and have kids and, and generations, just as we do now. Thousand years these people are going to live and multiply, and who knows what the population will be. There's going to be many people, I believe, at the end of the millennium. Again, they're going to survive, and then they will have children, and their children will have children, and so on and so forth. It will be these who will be deceived, many of these, that will form a great army, come against Jerusalem. And as we see here, when this happens, Yahweh is going to uh, resolve the issue. It says here that he's going to rain fire down from heaven and devour those who come against his city, devour this army. After this, we find that Yahweh is going to cast Satan into the lake of fire and brimstone. Now it says here that he's going to be tormented forever and ever without end. Now in Ezekiel 20, verse 18, we find that Satan also, it says, is going to be devoured, turned to ashes. It says there, quote, Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thine iniquities or sin. By the iniquity of thy traffic, therefore, will I bring forth a fire from the midst of you. It shall devour you, and I will bring you to ashes upon the earth in the sight of all them that behold thee. You know, based on this, I don't believe that, Yah, that Satan is going to literally burn forever. He's not going to burn forever and ever and ever. You know, in some ways, I think this is almost a Hebraism. We see this same thing in Isaiah 66, 24, where it says the worm shall not die. Or it's just simply saying, I believe that Yahweh's punishment or his, his judgment will be carried out. That's what I was saying. But we see, according to uh, Ezekiel, that Satan will die, he will be devoured, and he will be turned to ashes. Now, after Satan is thrown into the lake of fire in Revelation 20, verse 11, we find another point in our roadmap, and that is a great white throne judgment. So let's read that. Revelation 20, 11 through 15, it says, And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before Elohim, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is a book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their the grace that Yahweh showed to them, no, it says, according to their works, is what it says. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and the grave delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works. So there it is, a second time. Their works. And lastly, here it says, and death and Hades, death and Hades, or Hades is just the grave. Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is a second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. 
You know, based on what we find here, what do we know about this judgment? Well, except for those in the first resurrection, which we've already learned, that they're exempt. They're exempt from this judgment. All of mankind will be judged during this time. Everybody that's ever lived, from Adam on, every human being that's ever lived upon this world or upon this planet is going to be judged at this time. You know, we also find something else. We also find the measure by which they're going to be judged. It says that they're going to be judged based on their works. Based on their works. I tried to highlight that as I was reading that, but based on their works. You know, many believe that we should not be concerned about works today. They will even go so far as to say if you try to do anything, you're legalist. Well, that's not true. Scripture says we're judged based on what we do. We're judged based on our works, how we lived, based on what we understood, I believe. Now, it also shows here multiple books, multiple books. I believe one book refers to the Bible, makes sense. You have Yahweh's standard. I think the other book refers or is a record of our lives, every word we spoke, every action we took, every sin we we um, made, certainly after baptism. It also mentions here the book of life and says that those who are not listed in this book will be thrown into this lake of fire. You know, I tend to believe that we're all written in this book in the beginning. You know, there's a lot of theories as to how this works, how this works. So I believe we're all within the book in the beginning. But if we willfully disobey and Yahweh's had enough, or we're removed from the book. You know, I, I, think it's, I think that's the way it works for the most part. Many ask, how will this judgment occur? You know, there's a lot of, lot of theories. You know, some kind of envision a big line and going for hundreds of miles and probably thousands, I don't know, a big line. And as you approach the big judge, the throne, there's a trap door. And if you did good, or you'll keep on walking. If you did not do so good and your works were not worthy, that door is going to open and you're going to slide down and that's it. You're gone. You're done. I don't believe it's going to work that way. I don't believe it's going to work. It doesn't really say how it's going to work here, but you know, we know that Yahweh is a fair and, and merciful and, and uh, compassionate mighty one. We know that not everyone is being called today. You know, it says many are called, few are chosen. If many are called, not everybody's called, right? It's pretty, pretty simple logic. Not everyone... Many are called, not everybody's called. So not everybody's called. Some's never had the opportunity to even hear the word. You know, think about some of these places where, you know, the Bible is almost banned. You know, they've never had the opportunity. Or I believe during this time, all of these people, those who were never called, or or those who never had the opportunity to to hear the word, they're going to have that opportunity. And it's going to be a process. It's not going to be a trap door scenario. It's going to be a process. They're going to be given time to learn. Now, I don't know how much time that is. I don't know what that looks like exactly because, again, Scripture doesn't say, not that I can see anyway. But I don't believe a loving, compassionate, mighty one is going to doom somebody to eternal destruction. Notice I didn't say internal tormenting. Eternal destruction. They're, they're gone. 
That's the way it works forever. Eternal destruction. No, he's, he's a merciful, mighty one. And I believe that he's going to give people a chance. You know, if Aunt Betty, good, you know, maybe it was Aunt Betty. Aunt Betty, Betty was a great lady, but she was never a believer. But she had good moral values and she lived a life worthy of her, of the knowledge of, of ethics and, and good values. Or I believe Aunt Betty is going to be given an opportunity to learn the truth. Now, if you have someone like Hitler, for instance, where I don't see a whole lot of good coming for Hitler or Stalin or some of these despots, some of these very evil and crooked and wicked men. And, you know, Scripture talks about how some people are created as brute beasts to be destroyed. I mean, there's no hope. They are so deprived. They are so wicked. They are so depraved. They are so corrupt that there's only one end for them, and that is destruction. But that's not true for everybody. Some, again, good people, people that simply maybe did not know or did not understand, they're going to be given an opportunity, I believe, to learn and to, to, either, to either accept it or deny it. And if they deny it, that's it. I mean, that, that will be it. Now, what is the end result of the great, of the white, uh, great white throne judgment? What is the end result? What happens at the very end here? And we find here that after um, everyone is judged... And again, however that takes place, and there's going to be time, process. And um, those who are saved are saved, and those who are not are destroyed. We find here that it says death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. Again, Hades is just a Greek. It's Greek for, um, for, for, for the grave. So death and the grave will be thrown into the lake of fire at the very end. And this will then usher in a new event and the next stop in our roadmap. And that is New Jerusalem. New Jerusalem. Revelation 21, verse 1, we find a description. And again, I could spend an entire message. We're going to really barely touch this. But again, for the sake of time, I want to, I want to end with this. But I'm certainly not going to be able to go in great detail. So, Revelation 20. One, and we're going to read just one through four. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from Elohim, or Yahweh, out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of Elohim is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And Yahweh himself shall be with them and be their Elohim. And Elohim shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. And there shall no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Can you even begin to imagine seeing Yahweh, seeing this, grand city coming down out of heaven to the earth. Describes this moment as a bride adorned for her husband. It's hard to fathom. You know, in truth, no words can really do justice to the exuberance, excitement that I'm sure everybody will feel. You know, even those who were with Yahshua the Messiah for 1,000 years, those saints, I'm sure they're going to be blown away along with all of mankind when they see this happen. Now we also see here that Yahweh's coming is going to bring some changes. 
Now again, some see this differently, but it says here that there's going to be no more seas or oceans. Well, I kind of believe that's going to be the case. We also see here that he's going to wipe away all tears, all sorrows, all pain. It says the former things will all pass away. Can you imagine a day with no sorrows, no pain, no death, no nothing, just goodness? It's going to be a wonderful time. You know, really, it's, it's beyond wonderful in, in, in so many ways. And again, I, there, there's just no words, no words that anybody can speak to, to really convey the greatness of this time. You know, the city itself is going to be 1,400 miles cubed. It's going to be a big cube. 1,400 miles. That's basically half of the United States. Can you imagine? One city. Of course, it's more of a country, I guess. I mean, it's going to be huge. And garnished with gold and every precious stone as we find within the word. You know, this is a prize that awaits all those who are found worthy of Yahweh's calling. And this includes, by the way, those in the first and those in the second resurrection. All of everybody that's in existence at that time will experience the kingdom. You know, I would encourage everyone here, no matter how crazy this world becomes to realize that there's something greater ahead. Realize that there's something greater ahead. We need to focus on the prize that is in the future. And less on this world, less on what is occurring, less on the troubles of this time. You know, there's things we obviously are probably all concerned with as we're seeing in this nation. But, you know, these are trivial things when we realize and compare them to the promise ahead. None of this really matters in the end. You know, I, someone shared with me when I was a guy that mentored me into project management. He said it was a six-month rule, and it goes like this. And I do this myself. I ask every so often because I'll get stressed, and I'll ask. Is this going to be an issue six months from now? And if the answer is no, or do what you can, but don't stress about it. Now, if the answer is yes, he says, you need to fix it, whatever it is. So maybe a little bit of stress is a good thing. But, you know, that's a great rule, though, I think. That's a great rule. Because so many times, those things that we're so concerned with are trivial things. And when we put things into perspective, and when we ask, is this an issue a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, forty years from now? You know, my age, I may have forty years, thirty years, I don't know. Years go by very quick. And while I have a lot of life hopefully left within me, I can see that, I can see the end. I can see the end. And you know, that time is going to go by very quickly. And I think it's incumbent and important upon us that we really consider our lives, consider where our focus is, and focus on those things that count, because this is why we're here. We are here to show Yahweh that we're willing to follow him, willing to serve him, so that A, we will be found worthy of the first resurrection and we can reign and rule with the Messiah and then the good part 
really comes, and that is that we will reign and rule and be there with Yahshua and the Father in New Jerusalem. So we need to we need to remain focused and realize the realize what's important. Well, I pray that this uh, message is a blessing to you, and and I pray that we would put Yahweh first.